was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. I am Jonah. I hate it when God does what I thought he would do. I am Jonah. I wish God would take revenge on the people I despise rather than forgive them. I am Jonah. I become highly irrational when things don't go my way. I am Jonah. In my resentfulness, I feel justified in my anger towards God. Well, good morning, Central. How are we doing this morning? Happy Palm Sunday to all of you. It is a great day, and uh, we are excited to be able to conclude our Jonah series today. We've been at this for the last five weeks, and this is part six in a six-part series on Jonah. So we've got a lot of ground to cover this morning, so we're going to dive right into this. So if you need a copy of Scripture, our ushers are coming down the aisle right now. Throw your hand up, and we are going to begin in Jonah chapter three, and that's going to be on page 926. And uh, if you don't remember, remember that number, I'll throw the slide back up in just a few moments. But let me just catch us all up on where we've been. Uh, we know that maybe for some of you, you weren't here last week. Maybe for some of you, you are joining us for the first time today. And if that's you, then welcome. We are so grateful that you are joining us today. We've been at this story for several weeks, and it essentially goes like this. God comes to a guy by the name of Jonah, and he says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to preach a word on my behalf to the people of Nineveh. Well, Jonah goes, well, I think I'm going to go the opposite direction. So instead of going towards Nineveh, he goes the opposite direction, and God has to kind of get his attention. There's a storm. There's a big fish. There's three days inside the fish, and then eventually the fish spews him up, and now he's heading towards Nineveh. And he's going to arrive in the city of Nineveh, which was going to eventually become the capital of the entire Assyrian Empire. At this time, Nineveh is a very significant city. And Jonah goes into this city and he's got a message and the message is a whopping five words in Hebrew. In English, we say 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. It's kind of a half-hearted attempt on Jonah's part to preach a message to these people. And yet, unbelievably, 120,000 people respond. They repent. They are sorry for the wrongs that they have done. And we read last week and we walked through how the people from all the way from the king to the pauper and everybody in between repents and they, 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 they take on sackcloth and they fast. And then you've got a king who, who sits in the dust and maybe there are lots of ants and perhaps a dead mouse. Uh, we, we, we don't know, but he's in the dust. And the question we have is why? Why are the people responding this way? And so Jonah chapter three, we've got verse nine where the king tells us why they are doing this. So notice verse nine with me. The king says, who knows? God may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. They do this because they know they've offended God and they're like, if we demonstrate these symbols, these signs of humility that we are sorry, then maybe this God will relent. And then we come to verse 10 and we read these amazing words. 
when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. So they repent and God relents. God doesn't send on them the calamity. Now at this moment, understand, Jonah has just become the most successful prophet in the entire Old Testament. At five words, 120,000 people repent and God forgives them of their sins. This is absolutely unbelievable. And then we read this in the very next verse, chapter four, verse one. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. Now, the way that you could translate this uh, seemed very wrong. This is kind of a little bit downplayed. Here's Here's the little Hebrew behind this. To Jonah, this was a disaster, a great disaster. And when it says that he became angry, the word here in Hebrew is the word hara, which is connected to fire. He became inflamed. He is irate at this moment. You're like, Dude, like, what is going on here? And then he continues with this. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew you are a gracious and compassionate God. Okay, but Jonah is not right now. Slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Now, I had a a teacher in high school. I loved this teacher. She was phenomenal. She was a phenomenal person, and she was a phenomenal teacher. Uh, She was from New York, however, which, not trying to be stereotypical, but she was direct. Like, very, very direct. And direct about everything. I can remember on a number of occasions coming into class Monday morning, the bell would ring and the first words out of her mouth were these. I'm telling you right now, don't mess with me this week. I've got PMS. (laughs) Mommy, daddy, what's PMS? (laughs) Minivan ride home. That's the conversation you get to have. Jonah is suffering from some serious PMS. It's just of a different sort here. Prophetic mood swings. I mean, God comes to Jonah with the word, yes, go to Nineveh. No, he runs to Tarshish. There's a storm. There's like a big fish. He gets swallowed in the fish. He's like, God, I'm so sorry. I'm turning my face to you. God's like, do you want a second chance? He's like, yes. God gives him a second chance. He goes to Nineveh. He gives his message. 120,000 people repent. And then God forgives them. And Jonah is inflamed. I mean, talk about some serious mood swings there. What is going on? Why is Jonah so inflamed at God? Well, throughout this series, we have been sharing a lot about Jonah. But we haven't helped you to understand much about the people of Nineveh. Who were these Assyrians? See, the Assyrians have been on the world stage for quite some time. They are very well known on the world stage at this point. 
And historical records from this time period, both from those who were conquered by the Assyrians as well as the Assyrians themselves, boast about what kinds of things they would do to the cities, to the soldiers, and to the captives of those whom they conquered. Uh, about 60 years after Jonah, roughly 701 BC, there's a guy by the name of Sennacherib. He's leading the Assyrian army. His capital is at Nineveh. And he launches an attack into the land of Israel and he attacks a city called Lachish. It's a little bit southwest of Jerusalem today. And uh, he puts a scene from this battle on his palace in Nineveh. Let me show you a relief. This is uh, a relief of the Assyrian soldiers impaling Jewish people who were captured in this raid. Now, throughout history, and particularly during the time of Jonah, the Assyrians boasted about kinds of things they would do very similar to this. Now, one of the things that the Assyrian soldiers would do is that they would cut off the left arm and both legs of a person, and they would leave one arm attached so they could shake the hand as the person was passing from life into death. They would remove heads of this entire family, put them on a pole, hand it to another family member, and make them walk into a parade carrying the rest of their family members on a pole. They would boast about stretching people out in such a way that they could take off every piece of skin while the person remained alive. And the rest of the stories go downhill from there. Now, I recognize that's a bit PG-13 into R-ish. But until you understand a little bit of who these people were like, it's going to be really hard to understand what Jonah's up to. If you were looking for a modern-day equivalent of the Assyrians, um, ISIS would be about as close as you could get. These were not nice people. And to Jonah... And to any Israelite reader at this time, they're like, no, 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 no. This is not how the story goes. God does not send a prophet to Nineveh. And if he does go to Nineveh and he does give the words that God gives him, then, then, then it like, falls on deaf ears. Like these people don't hear the message. And, and if for some reason they did hear the message and they did repent, well, then God shouldn't relent. God should not extend grace and mercy and forgiveness to them. No, no, no. This whole story is wrong. And yet this is exactly what God does. And Jonah is inflamed at God. And you go, well, can you blame him? I mean, it, does Jonah have a right to be angry? Well, apparently God says he doesn't. Because notice God's response to Jonah's anger. Verse four, the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? And then notice what happens next. Jonas wa Jonah walks out of the conversation. He doesn't answer God's question. He's like, I'm not even gonna answer that. Notice verse five. Jonah had gone out and sat down at the place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Jonah doesn't even answer the question, and we are told that he goes east. Now, this isn't just a nice little detail that just says, well, this must be the best hill around Nineveh in order to get a view of the city. It tells us Jonah went east. That is a very important detail because east is very significant in the biblical text. Some of you will remember us talking about this at Christmas where east of anything is not good. 
Uh, when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, they went east. When Cain killed Abel, he then fled to the east. The Tower of Babel was constructed by people who had been journeying east. When Abraham and Lot go their separate directions, Lot goes east and ends up in Sodom and Gomorrah. When the Israelites are going to be conquered by the Babylonians and they are deported, they are deported to the east. East is the direction of exile. East is the direction of those who are going away from God. East is symbolic of disobedience and rebellion. And Jonah is sitting east of the city in rebellion. It's fascinating in many ways because just a few short verses earlier, he says, listen, God, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. And yet now Jonah sits east of the city with a front row seat to God changing his mind and doing what's right. Because for Jonah, he's like, this is ridiculous. Clearly God isn't going to be so stupid to continue in this train of course. Like God is going to wise up, recognize the great disaster of what he has just done, and now he's going to smite the city. It's like Sodom and Gomorrah all over again, baby, and I got a front row seat to this. Because his message, remember, 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. What are we in, day two here? Day three? He's like, I got 37 more days to see if God's gonna overturn this place. And I'm gonna sit and watch it happen because God will wise up. And in the midst of this, we recognize that he's planning on camping out for a while. Because it says that he has built himself a shelter to wait to see what will happen. Now, this shelter would have been uh, very minimalistic at best. Um, There's not a ton of timber around the region of Nineveh. Uh, So he's probably just taking some stones and he's probably put stones on one side and put stones on another side or maybe he's done clay. Clay is very rich in that area. And then he probably just found a few sticks and branches that he's kind of woven together to kind of put something over his head. But we're gonna find out in a few moments he's not very comfortable. Uh, So this is not like a really, really great shelter, but he is sitting here waiting to see what God will do. And remember, he left the conversation before. He doesn't want to have this conversation. He wants to just go sit and watch that God's going to change his mind. And then God, in his immense love and compassion for Jonah, tries to come at this whole conversation from a different angle. And he employs an object lesson from the school of nature. Notice what happens next. It says this, then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. Now, this word here, the Lord God provided, this is a very important Hebrew word that shows up many times in in the Jonah story. Uh, It's this word mana. Let me hear you just say mana. Mana is a word that means to appoint, to assign, or to provide. The idea is this, is God has appointed this leafy plant for a task. By the way, this is the exact same word at the end of chapter one when it says, and God appointed 
a large fish to swallow Jonah. It is a direct divine task of a miraculous nature. That the fish is doing something miraculous because God has appointed it to do something for him. The plant here is doing the same thing. Now, we're told here that this is a leafy plant. Uh, Many botanists as well as scholars believe that this is a gourd of some sort. In fact, many of your translations, I'm willing to bet, will not use the word leafy plant. It'll say it's a gourd, uh, which is kind of fun because Jonah gets a gourd from the Lord. (laughs) And it says that he's so happy about this gourd. In fact, in the Hebrew, it's like he is exceedingly happy. By the way, this is the first time in the text that Jonah is happy. And what makes him happy? He's gourd. He's gourd from the Lord. It's like, Jonah, what makes you happy? My gourd. Jonah, what do you want for your birthday? Oh, just give me a gourd. Like my love language is gourd. Because apparently some people really like gourds. So fellas, next Valentine's Day, like skip the roses, go right for the gourds. Like home run. So Jonah gets his gourd from the Lord and he's so happy about his gourd. And then we read this next. Verse seven, but at dawn the next day, God provided, there's that word mana, a worm which chewed the plant and so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided, there's the word mana again, a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. So Jonah is inflamed at what God has done. Then he gets his gourd, and he's so happy, and then a worm chews it up, and east wind comes, and now Jonah wants to die again. Like the PMS is going back and forth again, right? I mean, the prophetic mood swings back and forth. It's kind of funny here, by the way, because he's so hot and he's like, with, he's like so thirsty, he wants to die. Like earlier in the story, he almost died because of too much water, right? And now he wants to die because he doesn't have enough. It's like, I goes, okay, you didn't like the sea. How about some really dry land? And all of this is going on. And by the way, we know that this is a whole miraculous in nature because an east wind in Nineveh would bring rain and yet God brings the heat. God turns up the heat on Jonah. And then God gets back at the question at hand. Verse nine, but God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Jonah's response, it is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. The other way you can translate that from the Hebrew, I will be angry until the day I die. And then God gives him kind of the the moral of his experience because he's gotten Jonah to answer a question. (laughs) Now God's gonna say, "Let let me help you understand what's going on, Jonah. Verse 10, but the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hands from their left and also many animals. God uses this phrase 
uh, they do not know their right hands from their left. This is an idiomatic expression that means that they're ignorant, they're lost. As some people have said, well, this must be just talking about kids if there are 120,000 kids in Nineveh. Nineveh can't be that big. <laughs> that would be a massive overestimation of what the population would be. This is a statement that is used throughout history to talk about someone who is ignorant. Um, not necessarily stupid, just trapped, they're lost. You see, when I gave those illustrations earlier, that was from the military. Now granted, the men from the cities are, make up the military and they do some absolutely vile and horrific things. But it's almost like God is saying to Jonah, Jonah, like these people are entrapped in a culture. This is what they grew up in. This is what they've been taught. They are caught in this vortex of thinking and they are utterly lost. And God goes, and I want to reach out to them. I want to extend a message to them. I want them to understand what they are doing and I want them to relent from what they're doing. I want them to repent from their actions. And it's like God's saying to Jonah, Jonah, it's, it's just not so simple that they're just evil people. He said, many of these people are just caught in a system and I wanna reach out to them anew. So I love how one commentator kind of puts this whole thing together about the, the, the gourd and the vine and the wind. He just says this about this story. He says, he, talking about God, attempts to convince Jonah and the reader that the basic response of compassion for living things is more important than strict justice. God's primary argument is creational. If you are moved to pity over the destruction of a vine you did not create, shouldn't I have pity over the destruction of people and animals I did create? God loves all his creation for he is gracious and compassionate. Very succinctly put, God says to Jonah, Jonah, you love your gourd. You loved your gourd from the Lord, but when it was gone, you were exceedingly angry. And it's like God saying, and I will be infinitely more broken over these people dying than even you losing your little gourd. And God asks this question of Jonah to end the story. The whole story ends with a question. And put another way, the question that God basically proposes to Jonah is this. He says, will you allow yourself to see things from my perspective and then act accordingly? Jonah, you've been so focused on your little gourd that you have lost the plot. You have lost the bigger story. And I want you to see things from my perspective and then act accordingly. See, what's Jonah's issue? Like, why is he so inflamed at God? Why is he so upset about what's going on? Well, I think we could all pretty much say that Jonah sees the world in a very particular sort of way. He's got these very clear-cut boundaries and categories of people. 
I mean, for Jonah, it's really simple. Okay, there are sinners and there are saints. There there are good people and there are bad people. And good people deserve to receive grace and mercy. But, But bad people deserve to receive judgment and punishment. But like some people are deserving of God's grace and others, well, they're just a little bit outside the realms of who God should extend grace to. For Jonah, it's, a, it's very much an us versus them kind of thing. Like the Israelites are God's people. The Ninevites, they're not so much. Like the, the Israelites, like we're the good people. Uh, the people of Nineveh, they're not. Like, God is fighting for us. God is on our side. God is clearly not on their side. And you know what? The story of Jonah doesn't want any of this. It takes our categories, it takes our biases, and it just blows them up and sends them to smithereens. Because the pronouncement of the book of Jonah is that God is on everyone's side. God has created all of humanity. And God desires that all of humanity, that whether they're falling into a little bit of sin or a lot of sin, would come to a realization that they are working in opposition to God's will in the world and that they would come to a place of repentance, that they would enter into a relationship with God himself because God goes, I love all people. I've created them all. I don't want to see anyone perish. I want everybody to come to repentance. And yes, God will administer justice because if God doesn't ever administer justice, then he's really not God. But God's first and foremost thing is I don't want to be known as a God of judgment and justice. I want to be known first and foremost as a God who is loving and compassionate, who will relent from sending calamity on those who would repent. And in many ways, what God is doing in this story is he's trying to expand Jonah's understanding of the way of the world. Jonah's little rudimentary understanding about how you can easily divide people up this way and that. And just because they do that, that means they're evil. And just because these people do it, that makes them good. God goes, no, 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 no. Like that is way too simplistic. Life is not that simple. And in many ways, God is going, listen, Jonah, I'm about all people. And if I have a message that I want to send to you, to the people that you think are horrific, God goes, I still have love and compassion for them. And I want you to work on my behalf. And in many ways, he's trying to get through to Jonah, but in other ways, he's trying to get through to all of Israel because they've lost the plot of the story. If you were here in the fall and we got to do the entire Bible in 70 minutes and we put up this graph right here, Genesis 12, three notches in, blessed for the sake of others. God comes to a man by the name of Abram. He says, I'm going to bless you and the whole world is to be blessed through you. God goes, I want to reach all people through my people because then through my people, then they become my people again. And we're right here in the green, in the middle of the story, just before Assyria will come in and execute God's judgment upon the Israelites for not repenting because they've lost the plot. It's been all about us. And God goes, I am for all people. And you are to be for all people as well. God is a God of grace. 
And one of the things that this book confronts us on is just how much of a God of grace he is. Now next week, Craig and I are gonna have the privilege of continuing to talk about God's grace in light of not only the Jonah story, but in light of the Jesus story as well. Because very interestingly, when Jesus talks about his resurrection, he does so in light of Jonah. It's the only other character that Jesus ever references in connection to his own resurrection is Jonah. So next week, we're gonna have a chance to talk about and celebrate the resurrection. And we're gonna have a chance to continue to unpack the nature of God's grace. And I can't encourage you enough to be inviting people to next Sunday because friends, we're gonna have quite the celebration here at Central. And we are gonna celebrate the amazing work of God in the life and work of Jesus Christ with a cross and an empty tomb. So we'll have a chance to unpack that next week. What I wanna do for the remainder of our time is I wanna look a little deeper into something that Jonah is struggling with because on the one hand, Jonah is struggling with this idea that people are not outside the realm of God's grace. But on the other hand, he is struggling with what to do when things don't unfold the way he thought things would. Jonah is struggling with the unexpected. And in fact, this whole book is about the unexpected. Notice all the ways that unexpected things have happened in the Jonah book. Uh, you have a God who commands one of his prophets to reach out to the people of Nineveh, to Jonah and to the people of Israel. That is unexpected. You have a prophet of God who chooses not to listen to the very God with whom he claims to speak for. That is unexpected. You have a storm, fish, gourd, worm, and wind who obey God, but a prophet who does not. That is unexpected. You have a dude who ends up in the belly of a large fish for three days and three nights and doesn't die. I think we can all agree that is unexpected. You have a king and 120,000 pagan people who hear five words and they repent and turn to God. That is unexpected. You have the ancient day equivalent of ISIS and yet God relents from sending calamity and extends mercy. That is unexpected. You have Jonah perfectly content receiving God's mercy to spare him from death, but when that very same mercy is extended to another, he wants to die. That is unexpected. And you have the most successful prophet in the entire Old Testament, and yet at the end of the story, he is utterly lost. That is unexpected. This is a book that upends our illusions of how things are supposed to be. This is a story that ruptures our expectations. This is about the disruption of life and how things don't go the way we thought they would. For Jonah, he is struggling with ruptured expectations. You see, we're a very calculating people, aren't we? Like, we know that like not everything in life is a given and that there are no guarantees, but we see the world through a particular set of lenses. Like we go, yeah, but life is pretty predictable for the most part. Like if I do this and I do this, well then this is 
the result. Like, if I just train my kids this way, then certainly they'll never make these kinds of decisions. Like, if I just put my head down and work really, really hard at work, well, then this will be the result. Like, like if I just eat a certain way and take care of myself, well, then I'll never run into any kind of debilitating diseases. Like, like if God speaks, and as a good disciple, I'm obedient and respond, well, then this is what the result is going to be. If I'm just faithful in my faith walk and I go to church and I do the right things, well, then I'll never have to experience this thing. Right? If I, if, if, if I choose that Michigan State is going to win it all, then surely they won't lose in the first round. Right? If for any of us we go, okay, the unexpected happens... Right? It's like there are no guarantees. We know that in life, and yet we have a particular way of thinking if then. And when our expectations don't materialize, when things don't go the way we thought they would, then we become angry, bitter, confused, questioning everything because it disturbs us. It ruptures us. And like Jonah, we can find ourselves just flopping around, desperately trying to go after that very thing to happen the way we thought it should. Because Jonah is sitting east of the city trying to understand why God didn't do what he thought God should do. Jonah struggled with ruptured expectations. Do you know what? There were lots of people in the Bible who struggled with this as well. Come with me to Matthew chapter 16. And this is a very important moment in the ministry of Jesus because he's at a moment where he's going to basically make a turn and start heading towards Jerusalem in order to die. Now, this is news to the disciples. Jesus has been talking very cryptically prior to this moment in Matthew chapter 16. But here in Matthew 16 is the first time where Jesus is very clear to his disciples and for the first time that he is going up to Jerusalem to die. This comes immediately, like as immediate as immediate can be, after the most epic moment in the discipleship life of Peter at this time. So Peter is one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He is like chief among the disciples. And he has just had this magnificent moment where Jesus has asked a couple of questions and he has responded and Jesus has just blessed him and praised him in front of the rest of the disciples. And it's like he's answered this amazing question about Jesus being the Messiah, but even more than just a Messiah. And immediately after this epic moment, this is what we read in verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. 
Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Okay, just in case we're all fuzzy or not clear on this, this is Jesus speaking. Okay, we're we're all set here. Jesus is speaking here. And he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a more piercing term to call someone other than Satan. Why does Jesus go after Peter in such an in-your-face kind of way? Well, who is Satan? Satan is someone who does everything he can to detract people away from what God is doing. See, in this moment, Jesus has just said, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem to die. And Peter's expectation in this moment gets ruptured. No, 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 no. This is not going to happen this way, Jesus. What are you thinking? That's not how you defeat the Romans. Like you defeat the Romans by killing the Romans, not by being killed by the Romans. Jesus, this is not how the story goes. This is not how things work. This is not going to happen this way. And Jesus' response is, get behind me, Satan. You are totally standing in the way of what God is doing. See, for Peter, he was so certain on how things were supposed to go that when the reality presented itself that it wasn't going to go that way, Peter struggled. And Jesus was essentially saying to Peter, God is up to something new. But if you just hold on to what you think should happen, you're going to miss the new thing that God is doing in the midst of the story. Perhaps we could just put it this way, that in our ruptured expectations, God desires to birth something new within us. Over the last couple of weeks, I've had a plethora of conversations with people. And by the way, this is one of my discernment processes when I'm working through a teaching. I've been working on this teaching for weeks, trying to figure out where to go, where to go with this teaching. There's so many different ways that you can go. And when I started to land on this idea of ruptured expectations, it was like conversation after conversation after conversation of people talking to me about their ruptured expectations. And it just confirmed that this is the direction I felt like God wanted me to take it this morning, but it also began to stir in me all the times when I've been met with my ruptured expectations. And there are lots of them, and I know there's a lot for you as well. Uh, One that came to mind for me was college. Uh, Many of you know that I didn't go to school to be a pastor. Uh, I went to school for business, and since most schools have a great business program, I went to school first and foremost for athletics. Uh, So my first decision was, okay, sports. And so went to a lot of different places, looking for the place to be able to go, and and eventually felt like God was saying, I want you to go to, to Cornerstone. And uh, so I was all excited, felt like God spoke clearly to me, showed up on the grounds of Cornerstone University, fall of 1998, and uh, things didn't unfold the way I thought they would. 
on a number of different fronts. I mean, basketball was one of them. I mean, you come in as a freshman, uh, there's a big jump from high school to college, and you have a lot of um, probably not helpful expectations, and there's a few wake-up calls that you have to go through, but, but I had just enough disruptions that I began to question whether or not I actually heard God correctly in the first place. And a number of fronts, but basketball was one of those. And I remember getting to the point going, you know what, I clearly did not hear God right. And I had a calendar and I started to mark off the number of days left until the semester ended when I would call it quits, leave the basketball team, move back to my hometown and reassess my options because clearly I did not hear God correctly in this whole thing. And I started marking them off, marking them off, marking them off and I got to the last day where I was like, this is my last practice. This is it. This is the last time I will practice as a basketball player on the Golden Eagle basketball team. And I got through the practice and I came back to my room and I heard God say, you're not done yet. Not yet. I can't tell you how grateful I am to God that he didn't let me bail on that situation because it was God's will for me. But a lot of expectations didn't materialize. A lot did, but many didn't. But God did more work in me through that phase in my life than I think God could have done with anything else. There were things I needed to learn. There was some maturity that had to happen. I had to experience things that quite frankly, if all of my expectations would have been met, I would not have grown up in those areas and I would not be the kind of leader that I could be or would have been had God not done these things inside of me at this time in my life. For some of you, maybe you're experiencing those ruptured expectations today. Maybe for some of you, you made a vocation change. Maybe you made a location change. Maybe they went hand in hand and things have not materialized the way that you thought they would. Maybe for some of you, you recently got some kind of report. Maybe it was a medical report. Maybe it was news of a different sort. And you were like, I was not expecting that. Maybe for some of you, you have been struggling with God because God hasn't showed up in a particular way that you expected him to. And you've just found yourself frustrated, angry, bitter, questioning all. Can I just invite you to be open to what God may be doing in the midst of this. That in the midst of your ruptured expectations that God may be birthing something new. Because oftentimes for us, we think, well, if things aren't working out the way, then I didn't hear God correctly. No. No, you actually might be hearing God correctly. You might be in a really, really tough situation and you may have heard God correctly, but God is doing something inside of you that God couldn't do any other way right now in your life. And that when we think, well, if I listen to God and do well, then this is going to be the result, God may go, no, the result is ruptured expectations and that's exactly what I've been asking you to do because I needed to do something for you. I needed to do something within you and this was the only way that we were going to get there. Maybe that's how God's working. Maybe you did hear God correctly. Now understand something, it's okay to be frustrated. It's okay to be upset, it's okay to be angry because that is all part of a healthy response 
when our expectations get ruptured. But here's the danger, you hang out there too long. You camp too long in the anger, you camp too long in the frustration that you miss the very thing that God is seeking to do in the midst of it. You are missing the new life that God desires to birth out of it. Don't hold on so white knuckled to what you thought should have happened and you don't open up yourself to the very thing that God wants to birth within you at this time. You see, Lent is a journey towards the cross. And it's a journey that's riddled, riddled with ruptured expectations. For the disciples, there was ruptured expectations going to the cross. For Peter, for the rest of the disciples, even for those people that lined the road on Palm Sunday, for some of them, they had a mentality, Jesus, you just go do what you ever want to do and we're with you. But for a whole host of the other ones, they said, Jesus, you go do what we want you to do. And Luke tells us that Jesus wept the deepest and most painful of tears on Palm Sunday because so many people had expectations that Jesus wasn't going to meet and they were gonna have a hard time following Jesus in the midst of them. Moving to the cross is hard. That cross was unexpected. And yet the movement of Lent as we move from darkness from light to, to light, from struggles to awareness of what God is doing because it was through the cross on Resurrection Sunday, the most unexpected symbol possible at that time, God birthed new life in the midst of it. And I believe God wants to birth new life in us as well during these times of ruptured expectations. I mentioned that the book of Jonah ends with a question. What's fascinating is that out of the 66 books in the Bible, this is the only book in the Bible that ends with a question. It leaves us in tension. It leaves us with a challenge. It's unresolved because the idea is, will we answer that question for ourselves? And so in keeping with the ethos of Jonah and how the story ends, here's the question for us today. And it's not a communal question. It's a deeply, deeply personal question. And the question is this. How will you, when your expectations get ruptured, to allow God to birth something new within you?